Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In this strange summer of 2020, this historic summer, many of the old certainties of the past seem to be melting or cracking up or disappearing or certainly coming under threat. We've had a lot of shows about the different certainties that are now being questioned from capitalism to democracy. Uh, we had a show on Break 'em Up about breaking up the Silicon Valley tech monopolies. We haven't had a show, though, about the United States. Perhaps the biggest certainty of them all, this country that has existed, or quote-unquote country that existed now for 250 years, um, which arouses so much anger and love uh, amongst different people around the world. Uh, Richard Kreitner, journalist, has a new book out on America, on its history of union and disunion, called, appropriately enough, in the summer of 2020, Break It Up. Uh, Richard begins by suggesting, and I was really struck by this, uh, that disunion is one of America's abiding ideas. Uh, Richard, what do you mean by this? Sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, I found in looking through all of American history that the idea of forming a union has never enjoyed unanimous support. There have always been people who either did not want to form one, or once it did form, wanted to secede or otherwise divide it. And that the project of union has been a constant in American history because the, it's never actually finished. We've never actually melded into one, as Eploribus Unum would have it. Um, there's something unnatural even to me, and I think to many people throughout American history, about the union, about governing a vast continent of now 330 million people under one government, uh, especially a democratic one or, or one that, that purports to be. It's never been done in, in the history of the world at that scale, and it's always been, been divided, and there's always been problems with it. And there's never not been some group of people that wanted to break it up. But in an ironic way, might it be disunion, this truly national idea, as you put it, that ties the country together. If, if somebody wanted to define what America is or was, it's the history not of union, but of disunion. I think that's right. I think that it's been true in many eras of our history, and certainly in this one, that the only thing that we all have in common across partisan divides, racial divides, is, is often not wanting to have anything to do with one another. That was true in the colonial era, when the colonies didn't want to form a union. And it was true through the early Republic and the antebellum period, when people in both the North and the South, uh, of course, wanted to break up the union or secede. And I think it's true again today, where, where we've completely lost the ability or the desire really to, to talk to one another. The subtitle of your book is Succession, Division, The Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. But it's not so secret, Richard, is it? I mean, it's pretty obvious to all Americans that either in the past, in the Civil War period, 
uh, in the labor disputes and racial disputes of the 19th and 20th century, and in today's increasingly uh, divided 21st century, that Americans or many Americans haven't had much in common. Certainly, the fractiousness of the United States and of American society is, no, is not breaking news. And definitely with regards to secession specifically, we all know about the Civil War and the Confederacy. I don't think many Americans know that disunion as a popular movement began not in the South, but in the North with the New England secessionist movement in the early 19th century. Uh, similarly, I don't think many residents of the West Coast who today make um, comments or noises more or less seriously about secession or Pacific Republic know that that idea is very, very old. It goes back to the 1840s before California even joined the Union. Thomas Jefferson, you know, supported the idea of the West Coast becoming a separate republic, as did Daniel Webster, who's, you know, known as Mr. Union, Union uh, and Liberty, Indivisible. Um, so there's, a, there's many layers to this story that I think most people are not aware of. You know, I don't think people in Wisconsin are aware that their state, not any of the future Confederate states in the 1850s, was known for its, sta its states' rights position. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of states and groups of people around the country who I think enjoy the idea that secession has been limited to the South and they're not, they've never had any uh, involvement with that concept, then it's actually not the case. I think that's the part of it that's secret. Richard, one of the things that I learned from your book, and, and it's full of, of, of really interesting information and anecdotes and historical uh, narrative, is that um, Aaron Burr was perhaps the first uh, great disunionist. Um, he was committed to splitting uh, parts of, of New England up. It's particularly intriguing given that uh, he stars or doesn't star perhaps in, in, in the very popular Hamilton musical these days. Right. Well, I think one thing the musical does not discuss is that the famous duel between Hamilton and Burr that ultimately resulted in Hamilton's death came out of this, this question of whether the United States should break up into two separate countries that, that um, Aaron Burr was involved as vice president was involved with the New England secessionist movement. It's not clear if he completely bought into their ideas, but they certainly tried to tried to recruit him to their cause uh, to run for governor of New York. And if he won, he would have New York join New England in forming a separate Northern Republic. Um, Hamilton knew about this because he was close with the New Englanders. And he called Burr out on it, and that's what led to their duel. Um, and then after that, after Burr goes into hiding, basically, to avoid being tried for murder, he, he flees to the West where he tries it again. He tries to break this, the, the West off into an, a separate independent empire where they would invade Mexico and take all the silver in the, in the Mexican silver mines and rule an independent empire. I think that's a far more interesting story than uh, what, what's, what's been on Broadway. Eric, uh, sorry, Richard. Um, I have to ask this question because it's one that came to mind as I'm reading this book. You introduced the metaphor perhaps of a marriage and America seems to be an endlessly bad marriage. Uh, two people or more than two people who simply don't get on, but for one reason or other stick together. So what? Um, isn't that the story of most countries? When I think of Spain or Italy, there are very few countries which are happily united. That's certainly true, but I think that the story up to very recently has been of American exceptionalism, that we're not like most other countries. Well, in you the world. think you're not like most other countries, but you mm -hmm. actually are. We certainly are, and I would actually make the comparison, and I do in the book, not to Spain or to Italy, but to a place like Syria or to Sudan, which are these post-colonial states that were cobbled together by their former imperial masters, and after, 
after they, they kick them out in a war for independence or, or otherwise become independent, they, they find they don't really have that much to do with each other. The lines that the former colonial ruler drew on the map correspond to absolutely nothing important on the ground. Um, and, and it's a struggle to, to make the system and the map you know, work and line up with, with people's interests and ideas. Um, and I think the United States is quite similar to that. Um, so I think, I think if we're exceptional in any way, it's only for our fragility. The uh, marriage metaphor, I, I was intrigued to keep finding popping up in the sources themselves. You know, as far back as like 1800, 1801, John Quincy Adams says that he's, he doesn't really care if the union divides. He's trying to cultivate a manner of looking coolly at that prospect because by analogy, if his wife asked for a divorce, he would not be happy about it, but he would grant it to her. Richard, do you think that as these forces of disunion over the years have become more and more pronounced for one reason or other, cultural, social, above all else, economic, the forces of American nationalism have grown too. In other words, the less reason there is for a union, the more American nationalism rears its ugly head. I think that is right. But I also think that there's a sense in which American nationalism is the reverse side of the same coin as American separatism. This is why um, you often find that the people who are most affectionate about the Confederate flag are the same people who are the most boastfully patriotic Americans. You know, that would seem to be contradictory, but, it, but it's actually not. And one of the sub-themes running through the book is how quickly that kind of nationalism can turn into separatism as soon as those people feel that the country that they believed that they were worshiping was not really theirs anymore, wasn't serving their, their purposes anymore. And people can turn very, very quickly from saying the federal government is all powerful, the states are nothing, to saying, you know, we should secede from the union because this country is not ours anymore. And I, I wonder if we're going to see that once again, should, you know, Trump be uh, trounced out of office this November. Yeah, that, that point was brought out, I think, in your last chapter, when you suggest that the forces of disunion were pronounced on the right during the Obama administration. And then as soon as Trump was elected, the whole thing turned on its head. And now it's the left. It's the Californians and the New Yorkers, you in Brooklyn, me in Berkeley, who were in favor of disunion. Precisely. That's precisely. And I had the idea before Trump's election. And so I, I was able to watch that in real time at the same time that I was studying similar reversals in American history, like the Republicans and the Federalists in the 1790s, when the Federalists were in power, the Republicans are calculating the value of the union, they're, they're nullifying or trying to uh, federal laws. And then as soon as Jefferson wins the presidency in 1800, that the party's completely switched and the Federalists in New England start trying to secede and the Republicans say that the union has to be held together, whatever the cost. Um, and I, I just, and that a similar dynamic uh, occurred before the Civil War, when the North favored states' rights um, to oppose the fugitive slave law. And then as soon as Lincoln you know, was elected in 1860, of course, they, they were insistent that the federal government was supreme. Uh, Richard, let's, let, let's think about this weird summer of 2020. As I said, you're in Brooklyn, I'm in Berkeley. You and I have a lot in common. I may not have your facial hair, but we probably share a lot, a view of the world, certain kind of cosmopolitanism. We have nothing in common. Well, maybe I don't want to speak on your behalf. I have nothing in common, not that I'm actually American, 
with the people living between us. Um, is that fair? Are Americans in 2020, or two kinds of America, more divided now in cultural and economic and sociological terms than they've ever been in history? I wouldn't say more divided than ever. You know, the book is, is a story of the fact that we've always been divided and there have always been extremely tempestuous moments um, and, and times where it seemed like the union might not survive uh, and that we're, we're in one of those now and there was no guarantee that it would survive then and, and there is none today. Um, I'm, I'm a little reluctant. I, I agree with you largely. There's very little to talk to many of my fellow Americans about. But I, I, I'm a little less comfortable kind of writing off uh, other people just generally. I also think Well, it's, that it's not a question of writing them off. No, no one's saying that. It's, it's, it's the idea which nationalism is grounded in that you have something in common. Right. Yes. No, I think, I think, um, I think that we have a common humanity and it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah, but then times. we could always, that, 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 that becomes a, you know, an, an internationalism. I mean, we have the same common humanity with people in Somalia and Bangladesh and Germany as we do with people in Wisconsin or North Dakota. Certainly. Well, I think there's definitely uh, a way in which breaking down the United States one way or another could be an internationalist um, objective, you know, that, 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 the form of the United States at present is the main obstacle to international cooperation, for instance, on climate Isn't change. that a pipe dream though, Richard? Particularly in an age of growing nationalism in, in Russia, in China, in Hungary, in Turkey, in Brazil? Well, sure, I, I think pipe dreams are, are good. I think that's, you know, I think, <laughs> I think the idea of union itself at the, you know, at the beginning was a pipe dream. That's why it took 150 years for the colonists to, to decide to form one. Um, but so I, I think that we have a common humanity, but as you're suggesting, not a common nationality. And perhaps it doesn't make sense to be making the same decisions under one uh, umbrella or in one city in Washington. You know, where things get messy, quite literally, is that in the 1850s, there was the Mason-Dixon line, which, you know, as I show in the book, wasn't very clear. There were Union supporters in the South and Confederate supporters in the North, but it was a pretty good way to uh, define the two different systems that, that Lincoln was talking about in his House Divided speech, um, or that William Seward was talking about in his irrepressible conflicts formulation. And there's really nothing similar to that today. The closest would be city versus country. You know, there's, there's, there's cities between you and me, Brooklyn and Berkeley, um, that are very similar to, to our neighborhoods and whose inhabitants are, are very simpatico with us. And there's people in upstate New York or, you know, even, even in the city here. That's where Trump comes from. Um, who are very different from me, and, and, and I don't have a lot in common. So I, I don't think that breaking up or breaking down the country, you know, either disunion or, or some kind of radical devolution, should be a way to seek pure uh, populaces or states only, you know, composed of other people with whom I completely agree, mm. because I think that's where you get violence and, and cleansing and whatnot. I think if we were to pursue this path, it would be a way, it would be to form governments that make it more efficient to govern those states and, more de and, and possible to do so more democratically. Maybe it makes more sense to be deciding all of these issues, health insurance, you know, abortion. I mean, tough territory, but maybe it makes more sense to be deciding those things uh, closer to home, you know, in, in, in eight to 10 uh, regional formations. 
Richard, it may not be any coincidence that it seems the most United States, using those, that, that term carefully, uh, are countries like Germany and Denmark and Sweden, the old Northern European Scandinavian model, which have most aggressively resisted the neoliberalism of international globalized capitalism. Given the way in which this neoliberal capitalism has divided us, given that it's compounded the inequalities in economic and cultural terms, do you think the only way to really cement a viable United States of America is to reform capitalism in a profound structural way? Absolutely. And I, I would throw climate change in there as well. I think addressing climate change is, is really the only reason uh, to stay together. And if, if we're not going to do that together, then, then we might as well. But what is I, I, I mean, I, I see the, the politics of climate change, but what does that have to do with a more successful union? I'm talking about like the Green New Deal. I, I essentially think that that is what could save us in this country, totally reforming our economy. That alleviating the cement, the new reconstruction. Exactly. Well, that's, that's been the model throughout American history. How do you connect far-flung, you know, Americans? You build roads between them. You encourage commerce between them. You, you encourage travel between them. But most Americans, you know, as, as we're talking about flyover country and stuff, most Americans don't really travel around the country anymore. They have no idea, you know, what this country is. Um, and I think that building up American infrastructure and doing so in a way that alleviates climate change and economic inequality is precisely the way to uh, save the union. Um, I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be able to do that in, in time, either with climate change or, you know, this disintegration that I think has, especially this year, already begun. Richard, many years ago, I, I taught the Federalist Papers and the critique of the Federalist Papers, the Neo-Federalists, and I... Um, and I always was kind of impressed with the critique of, of, of the Federalists in terms of their focus on local government, particularly that Jeffersonian model. Um, given America's strength in de local democracy, again, Tocqueville was the one who outlined this, who wrote about it most convincingly. Do you think that American democracy could be strengthened by disunion? by a focus on the local, given the profound dysfunctionality of the current federal system from, you know, the, 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 the electoral college to the way in which the Senate gets carved up. These are all self-evidently archaic and dysfunctional at the moment. I'm really glad you asked this question because this is precisely where I, where I began my, my journey sort of with the book, was discovering the writings of the anti-federalists and realizing, wow, nobody had ever really told me about this before. And, you know, not that, not that we can map our current left-right divisions onto those of two and a half centuries ago, but I thought there were definite, you know, modern contemporary leftist strands in the, in the anti-federalist argument. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I began. And I, I definitely think that, there, that it's possible, at least, that disunion could ignite a, um, a rebirth of American democracy. You know, in the book I talk about, back to Hamilton, I talk about this letter, one of the last letters that Hamilton wrote, um, before the duel and before his death, in which he's writing to the New England Federalists, uh, who were his friends, who were thinking about seceding from the Union. And he's saying, don't, that won't make any of our problems better. It'll only make them worse. It'll, it'll strengthen American democracy in each of the constituent parts that you're going to break it down into, which is precisely what he and the fellow Federalists were against, against was democracy. So, you know, I, my, my, my attitude is if it was good enough for Hamilton, I think that 
we should at least uh, consider giving it a shot. It's essentially an argument for the left to to take seriously the the you know small f federalist arguments that have been made by the right for the last several decades. Exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. That this may be an area where people on the left, like yourself, would actually agree in, in many ways with conservatives, not the the Trump kind of conservatism, but a more serious, thoughtful conservatism. Yeah, well, even even the Trumpies, I mean, if they're if they're out of power, they might say, you know, forget it. We're not we're not going to support the federal government anymore. And it might be, you know, as as we were talking when we when we started here, it might be that the one thing that we can agree on is to break apart. Would that be such a bad thing, do you think? In fifty I think, years? I think it would. Well in fifty years, I don't know. Uh, I think I think it would. You know, I, I don't support it. I hope we can make it work. Um, but I do think that the only way to make it work is to think seriously about what it means to have, for it to work. You know, what are we holding the union together for? Uh, and not just for its own sake. It, it, it was, it was, I think this is actually a um, kind of a patriotic sentiment to, to return to the idea of the founders, which was that the union was not an end into itself, but a means to certain ends. And, and for them, it was the ones that were specified in the Declaration of Independence, you know, the rights to liberty, life, and, and the pursuit of happiness. What I like about your book, Richard, I know you spent five years uh, writing and researching it, is that you are a, an erudite historian of the disunion of America. You, you write about every chapter in, 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 in the weird uh, history of this disunion, um, and it gives you some perspective. It means you don't panic or you don't argue we're somehow at the end of history. I'm assuming then that, that, that for you then 2020 is just another chapter or perhaps even um, footnote is that you're not apocalyptic about the coming election. That's fine. I'm, I'm actually quite the opposite. I'm quite apocalyptic oh. about the coming election. <laughs> I think all the stars are aligned um, for a very serious crisis in this country. And that's been you know, a long time in the making and it's not only Trump's doing, but he's certainly exacerbating and taking advantage of for his own purposes. You know, you've got a completely out of control virus. You've got uh, democracy itself being undermined in a thousand different ways by by the party in power. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm quite concerned about what the winter holds. And and I don't I don't think that the the stories that I tell in the book of past crises that that for one reason or another often just mere luck or overcome should give us any comfort that this one, you know, will will end peacefully. Uh, also. I think that's that's not really how history works. I kind of think that historians who who say that you know the soul of America triumphed before and it will again uh, are giving us a very very false sense of complacency and comfort. And now you you've made me really worried, Richard. Um, <laughs> if indeed the apocalypse is coming in November twenty, we've got about three months to read some good books. You're stuck in Brooklyn. What should people be reading? They should certainly read Break It Up because. It gives this wonderfully rich and complex history of American disunion. Uh, very, very well written and very well researched book. But what else are you reading, Richard, in these weird times? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, for the book, I just I read like I don't know thousands, thousands of history books, nonfiction, <laughs> pretty hardcore academic stuff. I I met my editor at one point. I was I was reading you know an, an academic book, and she said that I deserved hardship pay, and I was I was racing through it. I, I didn't really know what she meant, but um. Anyway, so I've been reading a lot of fiction, which is kind of where my, my love of reading and of writing started. Uh, so I read War and Peace uh, in the spring, which I, I totally loved um, until the very end. Tolstoy's going off on, on his very, very dry thoughts about history, but I enjoyed the novel aspect. I read Portrait of a Lady. 
Um, I read Sally Rooney. Who else did I read? Oh, I read um, Albert Murray, who's a Southern uh, writer, um, African-American writer, who's just absolutely terrific. I read a novel of his called Train Whistle Guitar. Um, and, oh, and I just read um, uh, Ben Sinister by Vladimir Nabokov, uh, which is his first American novel. And it's, it's kind of his, his only political novel. Uh, it's about a, a, the arrival of a dictatorship in a you know, fictional European country. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.